peculiar time of the year when it's to know where you are and why you have been kidnapped. Well, the bridge of Sai. The guys who works here went psycho. Welcome to October by May. The short stories of Edward T. May. Presented by James Allen May. One of the fastest ways to make a new friend is to discover you share an intense passion for some niche thing. I mean, I'm sure many of you have bonded with complete strangers over your obsessive, ravenous passion for the October by May podcast, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Like, when you take your nightly stroll around the neighborhood and decide, you know, tonight, instead of taking the usual route back home, the full moon is bright enough, I'm going to walk back through the haunted nightmare forest. Yeah, this sounds like a pleasant evening treat. So you take up the opportunity. You're enjoying your walk, ignoring the sounds of the creature that seems to be stalking you, when you see a hunched figure drawing in the dirt with a sharp, sharp stick. The figure's mass of tangled hair covering their face. You approach this being, and when they look up, you see headphones protruding from their ears. You mouth, October by May? And the figure sets down the impossibly sharp stick, as well as the small animal heart they were holding in their other hand, to remove their earphones and say, Oh my gosh, how did you know? Then the two of you launch into a spirited discussion over your favorite story so far. You like Bridge of Sighs, but they insist the past has an appetite, had a more surprising ending. Anyways, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm sure you are still friends with that person to this day. This timeless and endlessly relatable scenario is one you'll recognize in our first story. However, I'm not so confident that these two superfans are going to be forever friends. Our protagonist is serious about his love for his favorite author, but his companion in discourse may just outdo him in intensity. His passion for the author seems deeper than what mere fandom could justify. Graveside Dialogue Like one that on a lonesome road doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round walks on, and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, The Ancient Mariner Fear The simple act of saying the word leaves a residue in the mouth and sucks up saliva like a sponge. Think of your worst fear, O reader, and perhaps then you will be able to fully appreciate my story when you are alone in your snug little house after dark, and hear the unfamiliar noise, the one sending a tremor through your vitals. Think of me, and do not shrink from extending me your sympathy. Yes, even in your snug little house you have reason to be fearful. The fear is with you, though you have the doors and windows tightly secured, and you may even have a weapon close at hand for protection from material afflictions, such as a serial killer. All your defenses notwithstanding, you still feel a doubt gnawing at the edges of your comfort zone. You ask me why? Because there is the tiniest possibility the strange noise was not made by anything natural. 
but rather by some thing from a realm beyond our perception. It has come to pay a visit, and your fear is derived from the fact the invader may just be impervious to your locks and bullets. Are you familiar, O oh reader, with the panicky feeling one senses in dreams? You feel it when running is the best option, but the legs won't respond. Have you experienced the same feeling in your waking moments? If you have, then you can begin to understand my plight on a certain night last October. Have you, O oh reader, ever read a horror novel and felt somehow sullied by the experience? Did you feel the need to shower after reading the novel? Did the novel temporarily alter your perception of reality? For a good piece of writing possesses the ability to alter one's perception for a brief span of time, so the reader is removed from Comfortville and transported to an entirely different neighborhood. The reader is thus unceremoniously deposited a few blocks south of insanity and right next door to paranoia. Authors possessing the ability to construct a novel of this type are rare indeed, O oh reader. Harve Feltkop was one such author. Harve was the best horror author. End of story. I considered myself his most ardent supporter. The most ardent, that is, until October before last when I made my annual pilgrimage to Feltkop's grave on the anniversary of his death. Oh, October. Could a horror author select a better month to breathe his last, even if given a choice? October is the month when nature recognizes the futility of resisting the inevitable and finally releases its grasp on life for a season. October, the month when the chill of death itself creeps into one's teeth and bones and turns them black as a lie at midnight. October, the month topped off with the finale of Halloween. It was the October before last when I noticed someone had left a box of Feltkop's favorite cigars on his grave. I was intrigued by the thought there could be someone more faithful to Feltkop's memory than I. Of course, I must admit I was also jealous of the fact I hadn't thought of such an apt tribute myself. I'm certain you can understand my desire to meet the mystery person on the subsequent anniversary. And so, on the same date in the following October, I made my way to the cemetery at sundown, what better time, and climbed a partially denuded maple tree next to Feltkop's grave. Finding a branch large enough to accommodate my backside, I settled down to await the visitor. Knowing I might be waiting for some time, I brought along a notebook in order to outline some horror stories of my own. The hours melted away, like the wax of a jack-o'-lantern candle. Finally, around midnight, I heard someone approaching. I gradually perceived a form drawing near. The visitor knelt and laid something on the grave. I chose that moment to make my presence known. I grabbed a hold of a branch and lowered myself to the ground opposite the stranger, the grave of Feltkop between us. I was certain my unconventional entrance would provoke a reaction from the man, but I was sorely disappointed on that score. Indeed, his equanimity was disquieting. Greetings, citizen, the stranger said calmly. A rather interesting salutation, to be sure, but after all, what can one expect in a cemetery at midnight? I've been waiting a year to meet you, I informed the fellow. Do you mind if I get a look at you in the light? Not in the least, citizen. Patience such as yours should be amply rewarded. If you've waited a year, then you deserve a long look. I switched on a small flashlight and illuminated the darkened figure before me. I was somewhat disappointed to find the man's face hidden behind, of all things, a 
a harlequin's mask. The rest of the man's attire was concealed by a black cloak. A harlequin's mask. Don't you think that's a little incongruous, considering the circumstances? I asked. Au contraire, citizen. I think it highly apropos. It is something Felkop himself would have labeled delicious irony. After giving the matter some thought, I was forced to admit the stranger had a good point. Given the setting, Feltkop would have loved the mask. I'm curious, when did you first conceive of the idea to place a box of Feltkop's favorite cigars on his grave at the anniversary of his death? I asked. Did you perhaps hear of the ritual performed at the grave of that other horror writer and... <laughs> oh, goodness no, citizen! <laughs> he chuckled. Why... My scheme was conceptualized before that other rider perished. I gave the man's statement no credence, for he could hardly have been so old. We are, all of us, at one time or another, subject to hyperbole, are we not? In any event, the man continued speaking before I could respond. Originally, I intended the cigars to be a present for Felkup while he lived, but the best laid plans, etc. I nodded my head to demonstrate my understanding. I've an excellent idea, citizen. Shall we each have a cigar in his honor? A tribute, as it were, to the man and the author. Without waiting for my answer, the stranger bent down and retrieved two cigars. He handed me one with a gloved hand. He fished inside his cape for some time before finally producing a lighter. He lit my cigar first and then his. He drew in a breath and seemed to relish the flavor immensely before releasing the smoke in a great cloud above his head. Felkop would be pleased to see us now, would he not, citizen? Two admirers bestowing a tribute in their own unique way. It puts me in mind of his novel, The Fatal Friendship. Are you familiar with it, citizen? Why, yes, I have a first edition, I said, perhaps a trifle too defensively, for the question was asked without a trace of mockery. The stranger's behavior was beginning to trouble me. I never imagined someone could be so self-confident, so at ease, so imperturbable. He never faltered in his words or actions. He would interrupt without apology, but left me with the impression he would not tolerate such an action from another. He was curt and commanding. He acted as though no situation was beyond his control, but there was something else as well. He seemed to be from another time, another era. Perhaps it would be more accurate to say he seemed to be from all eras, as if he possessed the capability of adjusting facilely to any time in any environment. You seem to be well-versed on Feltkop and his stories, I said sincerely. Tell me, which of Feltkop's works do you consider your favorite? I expected the man to ponder the query for some time before responding, but he apparently anticipated my question, for he was ready with an answer. Without a doubt it would be the reversal. The stranger assured me. It is extremely difficult to carry on a conversation with an individual when you are denied the opportunity to view their facial expressions. Vocal modulations can betray a variety of emotions and intentions. Sarcasm, humor, fear can all be detected in such a manner. But a person's facial mannerisms are able to tell a story all their own. I felt myself to be laboring under a handicap by being denied visual access to the stranger's face. It was just one more disquieting aspect concerning the stranger. Are you familiar with that story, citizen? He said slyly. Of course I'm familiar with it, I said with some resentment. Though it's not one of his better known pieces. Recount it for me, citizen, he demanded. Let us enjoy it together. We could hardly ask for a more appropriate setting. 
I had to think for a moment, to sort through all of Feltkop's works, before I finally remembered the plot. Shall I begin, citizen? He said in a taunting manner. Or was it merely good-humored jesting? Again, I could not see the facial expression accompanying the words. No, no, I remember it, I protested. It took place in France around the time of the Revolution. A dissolute count, I believe his name was Lebeau, enjoyed the practice of abducting peasants and bringing them to his castle, where he would proceed to torture. Ah, yes, the tortures, the man rudely interrupted. I ask you, citizen, can Feldkopf's descriptions of the exquisite tortures employed by Lebeau ever be equaled? A distinct uneasiness began to engulf me at this point in our conversation. In my opinion, to modify torture with exquisite was beyond the pale. Don't misunderstand. I don't object to descriptions of tortures per se, but there is an unspoken etiquette to be observed in such matters. Tortures can be necessary to a horror story, but to speak of such atrocities in glowing terms, other than in the context of the story, is gauche. There was something else disturbing me as well. The tone of his voice implied a desire, almost a sentimental longing, if you will, to be present at the events being related. I began narrating again. Then, as the revolution proceeds, the mob gains control of France. When that occurs, Count Lebeau finds himself in a somewhat precarious situation, does he not, citizen? One might even say embarrassing. That's correct. The mob eventually storms Lebeau's castle, and they discover his unsavory pastime. At that point, they decide to give him a taste of his own medicine, whereupon they begin to torture the Count. And make no mistake, citizen, they enjoyed their work, he said with unusual fervor. Have you ever performed a task with unrestrained zeal, with absolute relish, citizen? If you have, then you can easily perceive the mood of the mob at the time. Carving their initials into Lebeau's flesh became one of their favorite diversions. His face, in particular, became completely unrecognizable for all of the initials etched upon it. The man's voice, as he described this aspect of the mob's activities was singularly dreamy. He apparently cared not who was being tortured, for he showed no favoritism for the Count or the mob. Apparently, the act of torture satisfied his... longing. Speaking of torture seemed to give him pleasure. I continued once again. At first, Lebeau screams and writhes in apparent agony as the razors are applied to his face. He begs the mob to demonstrate some form of pity, then... Allow me to pick up the tale from that point, citizen, for it is my favorite part. The stranger commanded me. The Count's requests for pity not only go unheeded. The mob finds them quite amusing as they laugh heartily at Lebeau. The stranger paused briefly, as if savoring the moment. And now it has arrived, citizen. Now is my favorite portion of the story, the revelation, the denouement. One of those torturing the Count holds up a mirror to Lebeau's shredded and bloodied face and asks, How do you like it, monsieur? Is it not grand? Lebeau's whimpers cease abruptly as he looks his tormentor in the eye and says in a firm voice, I could not have done better myself, mon ami. Lebeau then begins to laugh. He begins to laugh, citizen. However, and this is an important point, it is not the laugh of a madman. Do you understand? If you do not understand the subtle distinction, the story is thereby rendered meaningless. The stranger's eyes grew wide as he emphasized his point, determined I comprehend his interpretation of the story. 
This was the first and only time he seemed on the verge of losing control of his emotions. Pausing for effect, he then continued, LeBeau does not release the maniacal shrieks of the insane. His laugh is a hearty, sincere laugh beginning deep down in the belly and rolling upward through the chest until it burst forth from the throat like an ocean wave. As if in imitation of the Count, the stranger then began to laugh himself. Then the crowd, I said, almost unconsciously, realizing no human could laugh after enduring such tortures. Yes, yes, you do understand, don't you, citizen? The mob finally apprehends the situation. At last, they realize the Count is not human after all. What is Lebeau, citizen? Tell me. It's not explicitly stated in the story. I temporized. The tale ends as the mob flees with Lebeau's laughter in pursuit. But you have your own thoughts on the matter, don't you, citizen? What are they? I breathed deeply. It's my opinion, I began hesitantly. Yes, citizen, please continue, the stranger growled. I've always assumed the Count was a demon in human guise. Ah, I knew you were a perceptive individual the first time I laid eyes on you. You have knowledge, citizen. The mob knew as well. And they fled in terror. Oh, citizen, you should have seen their faces. It was glorious, he announced deliriously. Seen their faces, I said stupidly. What do you mean? As far as I know, there's no illustrated edition of... My words withered in my throat while my unease flourished. I've grown rather fond of you, citizen. I think I shall spare you this time. But don't let me catch you out after dark again. The stranger said firmly, yet equably, as if scolding a wayward child. Earlier, I mentioned you deserved something. I said you deserved a good look at me. Do you remember, citizen? I could only nod, for a primal fear had robbed me of all speech. When I made this statement, I wasn't referring to my mask, citizen. Switch on your light once again. Gaze upon the face that will most assuredly shatter your sanity. The stranger brought up a gloved hand and removed his harlequin's mask. My curiosity overcame my common sense. My actions were almost involuntary as I turned on the flashlight and played the beam upon his, what was left of his face. The stranger began laughing. The fear was with me then, O reader, have no doubt. As I plunged headlong through the cemetery, the stranger's uproarious laughter fading in the distance. I knew then why Feldkop was such a singularly proficient writer. Not all of Feldkop's stories were fiction. I also knew I would never again venture out after dark. The obscenity with the Harlequin mask still visits me in my nightmares. <laughs> See what I mean? Endlessly relatable. Chance encounters in graveyards at midnight are just part of the human experience. On that note, chance encounters at graveyards are just as common in the middle of the day. Cody Payton is about to have one such encounter. However, his isn't going to be one of mutual interests. No. The woman Cody meets has something to say that Cody is not sure he wants to hear. 
That's because Cody would rather not hear anything about the woman he accidentally killed. Any last regrets? Cody Payton, age of 16, had made a mistake. That, at least, was something everyone could agree on. Of course, everyone also agreed it was a darn pity and a shame that Stella Brookline, age of 88, had died under the wheels of Cody's car. The mistake, the one agreed upon by everyone, occurred when Cody, certainly not known as a party animal, stumbled into a late-night birthday bash for a classmate quite by accident. He indulged in one beer, just one, barely enough to taint his breath, then decided to leave. In retrospect, it would have been better for Cody had he stayed at the party and consumed alcohol until he'd passed out. A monstrous hangover and subsequent tongue-lashing from his parents would have been preferable to the alternative, for it was on his way home from the party that Mrs. Brookline was, regrettably, hit by Cody's car. To Cody's credit, he did not flee the scene. He immediately called emergency personnel and did his best to comfort an unconscious Mrs. Brookline in her last minutes. He took responsibility for his actions, something noteworthy in this day and age, to say the least. Those in favor of a lenient sentence pointed out that Cody, up until the time he committed the agreed-upon mistake, had been a model student and citizen. Well-liked by his peers and teachers, Cody was also an active volunteer in the community. He had a bright future ahead of him. Cody's supporters conceded he should not have had any beer at all, but the level of alcohol in his blood was not enough to place him in the category of under the influence, nor was he impaired for that matter. Does it make sense to ruin a boy's life because of one lapse in judgment? His supporters asked. What purpose would be served? Since Mrs. Brookline had been quite alone in the world, all her relatives having already passed on, her cause was quickly taken up by various victims' rights groups. Along with their collective hand-wringing, a hue and cry went up from the midst of these organizations, and the spokespersons argued vehemently that an example must be made of Cody Payton. How often must this happen? They wondered in tones far from dulcet. Before society wakes up, drivers must realize a price will be paid for running over little old ladies or anyone else for that matter. As often happens in cases of this nature, the judge's sentence infuriated everyone and pleased no one. Cody was placed on a probationary status for one year, during which time he was forbidden to drive a motor vehicle and was required to attend a series of classes delineating the evils associated with the consumption of demon rum. But the most controversial aspect of the sentence stated Cody must visit Mrs. Brookline's grave every day for the next 365 days. No excuse, short of sudden death would be considered acceptable for missing a visit. Furthermore, during each of Cody's visits, he was to place upon Mrs. Brookline's grave a floral arrangement costing not less than $10. Outraged by what they considered a ridiculously soft punishment, the victims' rights groups swore they would have Mrs. Brookline's grave under constant surveillance to ensure the sentence was carried out. Let Cody Payton slip up one time just once, and the incident would be duly noted, recorded, and reported to the proper authorities. Cody's supporters immediately got a case of the what-ifs. What if Cody became too ill to make the daily visit? Noting the cemetery was over ten miles from Cody's house, they pointed out he couldn't simply walk across the street to perform the penitential rite required of him. What if a monstrous blizzard descended on the city, making roadways impassable? What if, for some inexplicable reason... A floral arrangement could not be obtained. Or what if the floral arrangement available cost less than $10? What if... 
but the judge was adamant. No excuse, short of death, would be acceptable for missing a visit to Mrs. Brookline's grave. How did Cody feel about his sentence? Did he consider it too harsh? Did he feel he got off lightly? What Cody felt about his sentence is irrelevant to the story. It will be sufficient to note Cody experienced profound guilt over the death of Stella Brookline. Not wanting to inconvenience his parents, Cody rode his bicycle to the cemetery as often as possible, purchasing the required floral arrangement at a shop near the cemetery. When bicycling was not a feasible mode of transportation, Cody's parents drove him to his daily appointment. Cody had been performing his sentence faithfully for about four months when he first noticed the woman. He thought at first she might be from one of the victim's rights groups, sent to the cemetery to keep a watchful eye on Stella Brookline's grave and monitor Cody's comings and goings. But after watching her for a few minutes, Cody dispensed with that notion. What did she look like? Was she old or young? How was she dressed? What social position did she occupy? All these facts are irrelevant to the story and were irrelevant to Cody as well. What was important to Cody was how the woman acted. She would stand in front of a grave for a bare moment, then kneel and place her hand on the ground. She would remain there for about ten seconds before rising and moving on to the adjacent grave and repeating the same actions. Cody assumed she was a cleric of some type, performing a religious rite. After this first sighting of the woman, Cody saw her quite often, in different sections of the cemetery, as he pedaled his bicycle along the shaded paths on his way to Mrs. Brookline's grave. The woman was always engaged in the same ritualized actions. Standing, kneeling, hand on grave, standing, moving on. Eventually, it became apparent to Cody the woman was meticulously and systematically visiting every grave in the cemetery. After coming to this realization, Cody revised his assumption the woman was a cleric. He came to view her as quite insane. On Cody's 365th visit to Mrs. Brookline's grave, as he knelt to place the final floral arrangement, he heard a muttering from nearby. He glanced to his right to discover the crazy woman was only seven graves away, performing her rituals and heading in his direction. Cody was now aware there was an oral component to the woman's procedures. At first, he could only catch certain words as the breeze wafted them in his direction. But as the woman drew closer, he began to hear the complete sentence, Release your regrets and rest in peace uttered over and over like a mantra. Cody stood by the grave of Mrs. Brookline. He felt somehow protective of the sight. He wasn't at all sure he wanted the crazy woman performing her ritual over Mrs. Brookline. After the woman had finished with the grave next to Mrs. Brookline, she stood and looked in Cody's eyes. Her entire facial expression, her eyes, her mouth, everything about her bespoke sympathy and understanding. Cody was unsure now, if she was crazy after all. He wasn't sure of anything. I have seen you here quite often, the woman said softly. She glanced at the headstone of Stella Brookline. The woman resting here must be very special to you, the woman noted, arranging the words with the same special care one might use when placing flowers in an artfully managed bouquet. Cody realized he couldn't lie to the woman. He would tell her the truth, but how? It wasn't the kind of thing he was experienced at. Telling a complete stranger he'd been directly responsible for someone's death and was visiting their grave as part of a court-ordered sentencing. I, uh, actually never knew her, Cody admitted. I, um, accidentally hit her with my car. I was made to come here every day for a year. It was part of my sentence. Cody was sure, as the last word trickled reluctantly from his mouth, that the woman's expression would change. 
The sympathy and understanding he'd seen there would surely mutate into horror and disgust. But it didn't. The woman merely nodded. They all have something in common, the woman said, her arm coming up and indicating the graves around them with a casual sweeping motion. Do you know what it is? Cody shook his head, but immediately felt the gesture alone was insufficient to the moment. No, what? he asked. They all died regretting something. It's writ large on the ether, she said. She could see by Cody's puzzled expression he hadn't understood. When someone dies, their last thoughts aren't like other thoughts. A person's final thoughts are intense. They're burned into the fabric, the ether, separating the physical and spiritual realms. The thoughts are there for anyone to read, if they know how to. Cody once again wondered about the woman's sanity. I do my best to comfort them, she explained. I urge them to release their regrets and rest in peace. Cody wanted to ask her a dozen questions. He wanted to know if this was the only cemetery where she comforted the residents, or did she visit other cemeteries as well? He wanted to know if her comforting was a full-time job. After all, what did she do for money? Was she independently wealthy? What set her on the path of such a singular profession? But, being a shy teenager, Cody said nothing. The woman knelt and placed her hand on the grave next to Mrs. Brookline's grave. She closed her eyes. After a few seconds, she rose and faced Cody. This man died in a traffic accident on his way to work. Do you know what his regret was? He'd neglected to tell his wife he loved her before he left the house. Cody was afraid. Surely the woman must be insane, with all her talk of ether and last regrets. But what if she wasn't? That thought scared Cody even more, because if she was telling the truth... Cody didn't want her touching Stella Brookline's grave. There was no telling what that would dredge up. He could just imagine hearing how Mrs. Brookline was on her way to get her hair done or play bridge or whatever it was 88-year-old ladies did when they didn't have any relatives to visit. Yes, that was it. She'd been on her way to enjoy the only thing left to her when some punk teenager ran her down. That would be her last regret. The woman knelt at a different grave and placed her hand on the ground. You might be thinking that only people who die suddenly have regrets, but you would be wrong. This woman lived a long life. She died after a long struggle with, well, it doesn't matter what she died of. She knew she was dying. The last thought in her mind was not what she'd accomplished in her life, but rather what she had failed to do. She never had any children, and that was her last regret. Cody didn't want her touching Mrs. Brookline's grave, but he knew he couldn't stop her from doing it. The woman could sense Cody was uncomfortable with the situation. I must were her only words as she brushed past Cody and knelt over the remains of Stella Brookline. Cody turned away. He couldn't stop her, but that didn't mean he had to watch. A moment of silence ensued, and then she spoke again. Cody steadfastly continued facing away from the grave. She was in pain. No kidding, who wouldn't be in pain after being hit by a car? Cody thought. Not from the accident, the woman said as if reading his thoughts. She had arthritis, cancer, sciatica, abscessed teeth. She was suffering, both physically and emotionally. She was alone in the world. She had no friends, no relatives. She often wondered what caused her more pain, the physical infirmities or the disconnect from human contact. Silence again. Then the words he was waiting for, spoken in her soothing monotone. 
Release your regrets and rest in peace. Cody waited, waited for the awful words, whatever they might be. After a few seconds, he heard the woman speak again. Release your regrets and rest in peace. She'd moved on to the next grave. She wasn't going to tell him what Mrs. Brookline's last regret was, not unless... Wait, he said, immediately hating himself for sounding so desperate. He couldn't bring himself to ask her, not with his voice, not using words. But she knew, and she told him. She regretted the fact she hadn't stepped in front of a car years ago. Once again, I'm James Allen May, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of October by May. October by May is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes every other Tuesday. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single sojourn into October. Please leave us a rating and review, as well as any comments or replies that you may have for us. Also visit us at OctoberByMay.com for more info, as well as links to the books by Edward T. May. Graveside Dialogue by Edward T. May Any Last Regrets by Edward T. May Recitation and Audio Design by James Allen May Theme by Hassan Nazari Rabadi.